it's given me a renewed drive for the possibilities that we have and we're afforded. It's, um, I feel like it's been the year for most, the ones that sort of dug deep when, um, when COVID hit through and, you know, through adversity, tried something different and rose up have really been rewarded. And I think that that is the case. And I think the public as well is more open to recognising that hard work and, and rewarding it. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Bakeries were one of the few food categories to buck the trend and actually boom during the pandemic. With most operators forced to pivot and offer something different to survive, some chefs turned their hand to baking bread. Some did it so successfully, it's now become part of what they will do moving forward. Ben Williamson is the co-owner of Agnes Restaurant in Brisbane. Ben, how are you going? Really well, thanks, Huck. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. You've uh, got a new restaurant in a crazy wild year. What's it been like um, opening a new venue? Mate, it was, I don't think the timing has been great at any point trying to get this restaurant open. Um, <laughs> it seemed to take an age to finally get the doors open, but it's... Um, Look, I mean, with the challenges and everything that we've faced, it's uh, it's actually worked out pretty well in the end. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's was a funny time. It's like um, you know, when you when you start to plan a restaurant, it probably starts, you know, years before you actually sign contracts. And really, for me, it just started with building a relationship with my business partners, and then um, you know, we found a site. The site was a beautiful old derelict building that we found up in. Um, uh, in the top end of Fortitude Valley going towards Spring Hill, um, which, you know, we had to do something with it. So, I mean, um, a lot of the, what took time with that was with DA approvals and all the, the processes that we had to go through that, that you have with an old building and then finding cancer and concrete and all those building hurdles, um, which, you know, finally started to come to fruition. Um, and then we got hit with the pandemic. Well, you left Gerard's, which was a highly successful um, multi-award winning restaurant, a couple of years ago now, and you've been doing various things since then. What's this last couple of years been like for you in the lead up to the opening of Agnes? Um, yeah, it was an interesting time. I think, you know, Gerard's I love very, very dearly and it was something that was close to my heart. But, um, you know, seven years I was doing that and um, it just started to get towards a point that, you know, mainly I wanted something that was very much my own. I wanted to have a bit of control over my own time. Um, yeah, to get out of, but it was, um, you know, like I said, with the process of getting Agnes open, when I finally decided it was time to, to spread my wings and there was an opportunity that came, uh, came to light and we decided to go forward. And with those delays that I said, I mean, the thing is I had, it was probably a good two years, two to two and a half years before it was time to actually get into the restaurant and get it going. So, I mean, obviously I had money aside that, that was that I could have was going to be used to build the restaurant it did get used to build the restaurant but obviously that was quite finite so um, yeah I had to do some things in the interim um, to get it going luckily you know I managed to pick up a few events in Brisbane and some bits and pieces that I could do I had my own ABN already that I could use to do that um, and an opportunity popped up in Sydney uh, to do some things with Noor with Ibi and the boys there which was um, you know a bit of a lifeline to be honest at that time. Well, you did some amazing things there, even though it was it was short lived. What was it? What was that experience like? 
Yeah, it was it was great actually. It was hard work. It was really hard work, which you know I I love hard work anyway, and I think it's I'll end up making it hard for myself no matter where I go and what I do. But it's um yeah, it was fun. It was sort of like another. It was very much in line with what we were already doing at Gerard. So it was a continuation of that, and then making it a fresh, bringing a fresh face to it. Um, you know, Noor was already pretty established with what it was doing with Middle Eastern food and Ibi just wanted things to, you know, evolve a little bit and go forward. So it was it was a natural partnership that came together from that. Um, I knew Ibi from doing a collaboration with him when I was still at uh, Noor. I uh, still at Gerard's with Noor, but it's, um, yeah, it was fun. Look, it was, I, we got really lucky and there was another head chef that was helping me there, which was um, Mike from... Uh, Mike Dillinger from the Bridge Room. When that closed down, he came on board and he was amazing to work with. And uh, yeah, it was a fun time. But yeah, it was tough. It was hard work. A lot of hours, a lot of fly in, fly out. I've got a whole new respect for people that do fly in, fly out these days. The spices and techniques and fragrance from the Middle East um, runs through all of your cooking. Where did that all start for you? Oh, started many, many moons ago. Um, yeah, when I was in my early 20s, I. I had a bit of a period where, you know, it was actually in Sydney at the time then as well. I, I grew up in Perth in Western Australia um, and at that time, you know, in the 90s when when um, when you turn 19, 20, you sort of spread your wings and you get out of Perth like everybody was doing that at the time and Sydney was a you know, great opportunity. I went and worked there but it hit a point where, you know, like all chefs, you start to get a little bit burnt out and... Um, an opportunity came up to work with an airline in the Middle East through a mutual friend um, based out of Bahrain. Yeah, um, it was sort of like developing menus and cooking uh, in flight for first-class customers, which was something completely left of field. And, yeah, I just decided to throw caution to the wind and, and take a punt. I was probably a bit too young at the time to go and do it, but it was, uh, yeah, it was great fun and you know through that and through the travel that was associated with it going all the way through different countries um, all over the world not just the Middle East but I mean certainly you know from Morocco and North Africa through to Saudi Arabia and um, the UAE you know Qatar there was a lot of places that we went and um, yeah a lot of different cultures that you work with as well so there were chefs that were doing that from all over the world and some were um, a lot of them were Middle Eastern based. I had a lot of friends that were from Malta and those sort of countries that were there. And um, the airline owned an apartment block basically that all the chefs lived in together. And so it was sort of like this big open door policy from uh, from apartment to apartment. And I actually picked up a lot just from cooking with them lunches and dinners for ourselves in our days off. And, you know, it was very much a, a wonderful experience. And um, I guess that's where the love for spices came from, for sure. It was a great experience. I, I said to myself when I went that I'll go for two to three years and I think I ended up saving for five. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a good time. Well, not many people get the opportunity to fly first class. What's, it, what's the experience like? Can you tell us what cooking on a plane at that, uh, at that level is like? Yeah, as you can imagine, uh, there's not a lot to cook with in the first-class cabins. It's uh, it's pretty bare and minimal. So the majority of the work that you would do would be on the ground, working with the ground staff and making sure you have a kit that works well and easily translates, you know, much like in the kitchen that you, you prep for service and then service is the finishing touches with a lot of things. It was the same sort of thing with the airline. And, um, and obviously with first class, it's a luxury and all the, the luxuries associated with that. And, 
you know, I was involved in the wine selections as well and the process with that for the first class cabin and the service of wine and, you know, dealing with the customers, talking to the customers. That was another element that was um, was quite daunting in the beginning but very enriching by the end. Um, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful experience for sure. Were there things that you learnt that you could transfer to running a restaurant from back then? Yeah, I think dealing with customers is a big one. Like chefs never get the opportunity to speak to customers. They're usually just tucked away out the back. I mean, now that we're in the world of open kitchens that everybody has seemed to adopt it, you know, the theatre of the cooking, um, it's now another element. The customers often will come up to the past and talk to you. But, uh, yeah, dealing with with customers is certainly a, a skill that I think I should learn. It was it was great, yeah. You, you mentioned that you, you grew up in Perth and you moved to Sydney and then uh, ventured to Bahrain. What, what led to uh, moving to Brisbane? Because you've worked in many venues there, not just Gerard's. Where, where did that happen? Why did that happen? Yeah, well, while I was overseas, I actually met my now wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. She was uh, one of the cabin crew uh, for the same airline. Um, so she's a Brisbane girl. Um, we actually, when, when we came back in the end, we went back to Perth for another year um, to settle down, uh, which which was fine. It was great. I actually got into catering when I was there and it was something I hadn't done before. I mean, mainly restaurants before, but uh, yeah, it was a new challenge. But then uh, she got pregnant with my first our first child uh, and with the hours that I was working as a chef and everything we were putting into it, she wanted to have a bit more of a support network here with her family. So um you know, I was up for anything at the time, so Brisbane seemed like another another chapter and something exciting. So um, we ended up coming here, um, which Brisbane's been actually really great to me. It's been a really great city. It is a great city. I mean, we have lifestyle, we have the weather. There's so many uh, wonderful things attributed to to Brisbane. It's still close. To, it's very close to Sydney. It's very close to the other states. If you want to get out, um, yeah, you've uh, you worked at Cha 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 and. 1889, Enoteca, Urbane. Um, how have you seen Brisbane's culinary uh, landscape evolve in your time there? Yeah, I mean, it's evolved pretty rapidly, I would say. Um, at the time that I came, I think it was ready for a change and it was ripe for a change. Um, I mean, it was always the state of, and the city of big steakhouses and, you know, there's a lot of cattle farming money and uh, things that are out west. So that's always been a very popular thing here. Um, you know, I learned a lot about that from Cha 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 my time there, definitely. Um, but I sort of, after Cha 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 when I left and I went and worked with Kim at Urbane um, and I ran the Euro for him on the other side of it, it was... Um, I loved, I sort of got a, a renewed passion for the finer side of food and interesting flavour combinations and interesting food. So uh, it was one thing that got me really excited. But the thing that was interesting to me is I didn't really enjoy sitting in the formal environment to dine with it. So um, I, guess, I guess that's sort of how Gerard's was born uh, when I started talking to the Mubrax about their concept there was that it's... Um, I wanted to do something that was fun and exciting um, but without the formality that comes with that food, uh, which I think was something that Brisbane was ready for at the time. Middle Eastern cuisine is not something we're unfamiliar with in Australia. We're quite rich with um, access to amazing food from that region here. But what's some of the secrets and tips and approach that you take to using those uh, spices and cooking techniques? Yeah, I think it's a good question and I think that, the main thing to consider, I guess, is that 
when you're over there and you're eating that cuisine and you, you're immersed into it, it's always still very clean and it's always very simple. And I think people that approach Middle Eastern food as being something that's complicated and difficult to get head into, it's the wrong way to go. I think the, the crispness of the flavour and the balance is really paramount, um, especially when you're talking about Lebanese cuisine and those of the, the Middle East and Levant or the, the Mediterranean coast. It's uh, yeah, very much clean flavoured, very fresh, and I think that's the key. If you can hold your spices back, you can hold the ingredients back to a point where it's very precise, that's the key to it being great. Can you give us some examples of some dishes that you've created that really epitomise your approach to that type of cookery? That's a tough question, huh? <laughs> I would say, um, yeah, look, the food that I did Gerard's was very – it evolved, I guess, and it was very evolutionary and it changed often and greatly. But I would say some of the staples that stayed were the ones that were really bright and fresh and very punchy. Um, so there was probably three items that were on the menu there during my time uh, that epitomized it, which would have been um, the Becker wings, which was uh, sort of like a take on a buffalo wing. And the funny thing is all three of these dishes sort of weren't, they, they evolved naturally. They weren't something that we set out to to create to be those things but it was you know we started doing a bar menu for the bar and you know what, what do you want to eat in the bar and one of the guys was saying oh we love buffalo wings well, well we can't do buffalo wings here because it doesn't really work within the context but how do we adapt that to make that concept work for this uh, food which was how that evolved so you know instead of using hot sauce we'll house make a roasted harissa that we use as the base and then you know how do we up the umami we'll, we'll use some fish sauce or some soy so we, to put that uh into it to, to bring it up um you know zatar to make it fresh the smoked butter to give it depth and complexity you know it's all about just building those layers to make something that's still bright but punchy at the same time um and then the cauliflower dish that we did, which became iconic as well, which was with a tahini sauce and raso hanout and smoked almonds um, and pomegranate seeds. Again, it's all about that depth of flavour and umami, but also counterbalance with the freshness and the smokiness. So I would say the key to the success of that would have been building those layers to, to give really great complexity. Yeah, Your food evolved, as you mentioned, quite a lot at Gerard's and – um, now you have Agnes. How, how do you ex describe what you're doing uh, with the food there? Well, Agnes, I guess, is the antithesis to the spice. It's um, I really wanted to let go of that chapter completely um, and go on a fresh new course. So, um, you know, it was quite a dangerous move for me, I guess. I had made a really good name and a solid foundation through that Middle Eastern food. But for me, it was just all about I really needed to change um, and do something different for myself to feed my own soul. Um, so the idea here is, you know, we, we cooked a lot on charcoal and a lot of the, the equipment that was at Gerard's over time, you know, the gas appliances and everything would get reduced and we'd move them out and then bit by bit there would be a larger coal pit or there'd be a larger element that we'd be cooking over coals. And then by the end of it, I think we were almost exclusively using the coal pit for most of the sources and uh, most of the proteins and the veggies and things we were finishing. So for me, doing Agnes with purely wood-fired cooking is just another step up from that. Um, and we, by no means, it's not that we're not the first ones that have done it. You know, Lennox of Fyodor, he started led the charge for Australia, I would say, and there's been a few others that have followed suit. And 
um, wasn't about trying to recreate what they do for the Brisbane market, but it was about identifying that you know Brisbane would have been ready for something like that, and then it's a natural evolution for the way that we were cooking, nonetheless. Um, but with a bit more of a European aesthetic to the execution rather than um, Middle Eastern. What's some of the challenges involved in sort of keeping it simple and, and cooking over charcoal like that uh, almost exclusively? Yeah, I mean, the, the really tough point when it's exclusive is the, just prep. So mise en place, you know, you've got to light the fire two hours before you're going to use it or, or you know, an hour and a half depending on the wood, you know, the density of the wood, how much moisture is in there, all these things sort of factor into how hot the fire burns and how much you need to tend to it. Um, and then the time it takes simply just attending the fire, all of these things just stack up and, you know, in a world where labour is expensive in Australia now, um, yeah, it, it really is a challenge trying to keep the prep load simple but still interesting enough for the customer that you, the, the rest of it comes through. It's, um, that's probably the biggest challenge, I'd say. When the pandemic landed, we've heard from so many operators and chefs and industry professionals sort of say it was a time to take a breath and um, think about things. What, what sort of impact did that time have on you? Uh, yeah, it was a really tough time. I mean, I'd pretty much exhausted all of my finances um, by the time the pandemic had become uh, started to become a thing. We'd put everything into the restaurant. We were probably a week and a half away from opening. Um, you know, I'm thinking, you know, within a week and a half, we're going to start making some revenue. We can start to build everything back up and um, everything's going to be fine. And then you started hearing these whispers and murmurs about what was happening interstate and overseas and uh, COVID that's starting to come in. But, you know, at the time, we didn't really think much of it. It might just be one of these things that's going to blow over. My business partner, Ty, obviously, he has two other restaurants as well and he, uh, he was stressed to the eyeballs and then, you know, I started to absorb his, some of his stress and take it on and it's, well, maybe this is going to be something that's not going to work. But I think like everybody, you just cling to the hope that it's going to blow over. But with time, it started to become apparent that it wasn't going to. And, you know, we had staff that had already been on that we'd had on the books for a month trying to, you know, get the menu development done and we we're working on the dishes and setting up the space and all those people were at risk um, of not getting paid and, you know, even for myself, I'd exhausted my finances, I said, so I needed a revenue stream to be able to feed my family, you know, and <laughs> keep them going. So uh, I think we took a step back and we looked at it and it was like, well, can we, what can we do to keep some revenue coming through here? There's talk of, um, you know, do, could we do a takeaway menu for people at home and, we hadn't even opened the doors yet or established it. So I'm like, well, people don't understand what it is we do. And I think with the nature of the fire, cooking over fire, I'm just not sure how that's going to translate to, to how we can get it back to, to home. Um, but we were working on sourdough at the time. So we had about four different types of sourdough that we were tweaking and trying to get right for the restaurant and, and which one was going to be right. And I thought, well, we've got this wood-fired oven that we can bake goods in um, retail seems like it's still going to be strong people still need to get out and buy things uh, and produce and nourish themselves so maybe retail is a way that we can go and we can do baked goods that's something that we we can um, we can adapt and would work, work well for us I mean wood-fired baked goods is a point of difference it might might resonate with people um, and I, I guess that's how it sort of got started and 
I remember the first day that we kicked it off, you know, we started development. Well, actually, that's the other thing I'll say. We were really lucky with the talent that we already had within the group. Um, you know, we had a girl that's working at Same Same, which is one of Thai's other restaurants, a Thai, modern Thai restaurant. But um, Natsumi, she was the pastry chef there. But, you know, it turns out that she had some experience doing laminated pastries in another job previously. So, you know, we pulled her into the conversation. How can we do that? You know, can we do croissants? Uh, what sort of things can we do? And then we, there was actually a research trip that we did um, the year prior through Europe, uh, we went on a trip from you know Stockholm through all through Europe, eating in fire-based restaurants, which was incredible as well. But uh, a lot of the stuff that we ate during the day was just pastries. So you know, especially in Copenhagen, there's so many great uh, bakers there. There's you know from Hart to Juno, and you know half the time we were there, it wasn't even really about waiting for the dinner that we're going to go to and researching for this thing. It was just about how many how many bakeries can we walk to across the cities and eat and dine and. You know, Queen Amman's were one of those things that were really great over there and there were so many. And you know, I remember from Hart, there was an incredible one that we had there. So, you know, we, we just worked with Natsumi to adapt that and then, um, you know, we were hand-making it. We were making the butter in-house um, to ramp up for the opening as well. So buying cream and culturing it and whipping that. So, you know, how could we... We were basically hand bashing it out to, and hand laminating these pastries, and we we're pretty conservative with our numbers. We weren't sure how successful it was going to be. And, um, yeah, when we opened the doors, I think we sold out in 45 minutes on the first day. Um, before opening, there was there was a line all the way up the street, and we're quite out of the way where we are at Agnes as well. It's not really in a very popular area, but it's um, yeah, it was such an incredible success, and nothing that any of us really um, really foresaw. What's some of the challenges in creating a great sourdough and also a great pastry? It's such an art to both of them. Yeah, I think it's just time. I mean, everything's time and, and being able to adapt and problem solve in real time. Um, but I mean, that's something that we have to do with the fire cooking as well. And it's something I love. I love to cook that way. I mean, I'm one of those cooks that never really has a standard recipe, you know, like the recipe is something that evolves and changes on a daily basis with the different ingredients and the different flavours. But, um, yeah, with sourdough and pastry, that's definitely how it works. I mean, there are some formulas you need to follow for sure to keep consistency, but, you know, from one day to the other, the flour hydrates differently. Um, you know, the sourdough starters at a different point um, of activity before it's ready to go. And especially when you start to scale production, um, all those things become important. But, um, I'd love to cook that way. It's really fun. And, you know, the hours that we ended up for scalability to be able to, to cope with the numbers that were coming through. I mean, Ty was saying, I remember at one point it was, um, you know, if we sell out in two hours, who cares? That's great. Like it's put money into everybody's pockets and the staff are all catered for and, and that works really well. And I'm like, yeah, but there's these people that have been lining up at the front for two hours that are waiting and we're disappointing them by not coming through. So we need to really be able to adapt and, and make enough to satisfy those needs. Um, yeah, it just became this big thing of scalability. But we, I remember working through, for me, I was, I'd cook the sourdough in the wood-fired oven. I had another guy, Mal, he was here. He'd make all the sourdoughs um, and develop them. But it was... I think in the end we would have been selling about 250 loaves a day, you know, 480 Queen Amans, 700 to 800 donuts. It was just crazy. Like the, the numbers just, yeah, just rose and rose and we just kept employing more people. You know, we, we're actually, 
we were at the, p- the point where we weren't even using the people that we had in on JobKeeper. We were employing new people uh, that didn't have jobs to, to get it moving forward. It really did just become this great and successful business, yeah. During the series, we've heard from operators sort of say as soon as everything started to open up again, that takeaway dropped away. What, what What's happened with the baking for you now that the restaurants are open again? What's, what's the situation with the bakery side of things? Um, well, because it was so successful for us and I did enjoy it really, it was one of those things that came left of field. I never would have thought in my dreams that we, I would have enjoyed doing baked goods. So I was never a pastry chef. It was never my forte. It wasn't something that I really got into. But um, yeah, with the success, so now we've been looking for a site since then to do the bakery permanently um, in Brisbane, but that's also come with its own challenges. I mean, we really want to find a building that uh, fits the aesthetic of Agnes and we can continue that, um, uh, the execution to give the similarity that was same to, to comparable to what we were doing during COVID. But um, yeah, it's very likely that by mid next year, we will uh, we'll make this a permanent, a permanent business, yeah. Wow. And, and with Agnes, has, has your vision of that changed during this time, given the circumstances of the last eight months? Yeah, I think it's um, – look, what we do with the food here, probably in the beginning it, we were aiming to be a little more high-end in the execution of what we're doing, a little more interesting, um, a bit more refined and a slower service. But um, I guess now during COVID, we had the discussion while it was going that we would um, – I think post in a post-COVID world, nourishing people with familiar food is something that's going to be um, more what the customer wants, basically, um, and value. So uh, I guess now with the execution of what it is, is it, it's definitely a little more pared back in the execution than it was going to be in the beginning. Um, but to be honest, I'm quite happy with that. And um, I mean, post-opening at the end of COVID, we, we didn't know what the numbers were going to look like either. Um, I remember making the decision, Titus wanted the bakery to continue, even after we could open, you know, he just wanted to keep it going. But it's, um, it's uh, you know, sooner or later you got to bite the bullet. It was always intended to be a restaurant and, uh, you know, it's such a beautiful space that we had so much time to work on that we needed to get it open and get people through. But, um, I mean, even with the restrictions that we had post-COVID, it's, I would say we're only really down 15% on what we would have been or what we should be running at full capacity and... I mean, we're booked out pretty much two months in advance all the time. There hasn't been a service since we opened um, where we haven't been at full capacity. Yeah, it's been really, really great. You mentioned that you don't really have recipes and your food is really um, one that evolves quite rapidly. Um, And the cooking over fire really is reliant on such amazing quality produce at its heart. Can you tell us about the relationships you have with some of the local producers and how important they are to what you're doing there? Oh, it's, it's everything. Um, it's absolutely everything that we have. So, I mean, the other thing that we do here is all the proteins that we have in-house are all dry-aged. Like none of our proteins see the inside of a plastic bag at all. They're all um, fresh-killed. We, we've got pork that comes from a farm in Toowoomba um, directly. We have pork that comes from another farm locally that's out in the granite belt as well. We have, um, you know, locally sourced beef that we sell and dry-age in-house. We have the ducks come from Barawangayan, which is just across the border um, New South Wales, but all of them really ethical operators and family-run farms. So, I mean, that, that produce is super important to me and also that 
having a product like that just lends itself to the dry aging that we, we give it. You know, the ducks are aged for a month to six weeks on average. The pork in the beginning, you know, now we're playing catch up, but the, the pork racks were aging for up to 10 weeks, you know, and they were really, really incredible. Some of the best pork you've ever eaten. Um, the beef we've got up to, uh, you know, the high end wagyu is aged for about 120 days in house at the moment. Um, and the other one, the, the Angus, we aged for about 90 days. So, you know, all those processes, the quality of that produce that go into it really start to sing and carry it through for the long aging. Um, which translates, you know, to flavour on the plate, texture, all those things um, really come back to how those animals were raised from the ground up. You've had some extraordinary experiences all over the globe with food and you've always been a chef that wants to evolve and try new things. Where, where did your fascination for food all begin? I would say like most, um, which, you know, at risk of sounding cliched, it was certainly from my grandmother. Um, on my mother's side so she was just such an incredible cook you know old Scottish blood and she was I just remember her constantly being in the kitchen you know whenever I was wanted to pull a sickie from school which was there both my parents were school teachers as well so you know there was no chance of being able to stay home so I'd have to go over to my grand's place Um, and she was just in the kitchen all day every day so you know if I had to go and stay there I'd be in the kitchen with her and you know chicken soups and scones and all those old school things that they did way back then but uh, she was just incredible and I guess also because she was just so relentless. Like it was literally all she did all day, every day. I mean, she'd do the washing and housekeeping and the rest of the things around the house as well, but she would just cook, 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 cook. So, I mean, pro- probably that would be where that inspiration came from and, you know, also just eating, being able to see the world and eat in different places all over the world and different cultures and how different cultures interact with the dining experience. was That's also something that, you know, draws you in. What's been the main influences on you as a, as a chef? I know that you love that time in the Middle East, but has there been some key moments that have really sort of dictated your direction as a chef? Yeah, I think Gerard's was certainly the big one. I think before Gerard's, it was very much, you know, bouncing around trying to find a niche and, um, you know, adapting what I could from what other people did. But the opportunity that I got afforded by the Moobrax there was that you know, I wasn't really controlled. I could do whatever I wanted. And it was very much um, my own personal take on my experiences over there with, you know, the Australian twist and the flair and um, clash of cultures added to it. But it was, um, you know, the, the luxury of being able to develop your own style and then the success that came with it was just incredible. I'd never expected Gerard's to be success, you know, successful as it was. I don't think any of us did, but it was certainly, um, yeah, what a, it was a wild ride, <laughs> to say the least. Um, Agnes is still quite a young restaurant. Um, what, what are you loving about what you're doing there at the moment? Yeah, I mean, Agnes is just seeing how the customers are interacting with the space is something that's been really rewarding. I mean, with the time that it took to get it going and the building was beautiful on its own, was, um, it was really a labour of love getting this thing together and the design process and how do we accentuate the building. Like we really left all the walls as they are. There still feels derelict from that aspect but then bolstered by all the other fixtures we put in and, you know, we spend a lot of time on the lighting to make sure that the diners feel like they're sitting by a firelight no matter where they sit in the restaurant um, and keeping the rest of it quite moody. You know, seeing the way they interact with that is super rewarding and, and really great. You know, that 
the working with the fire is amazing as well and constantly working with the producers and the produce. I mean, there's some great guys. I know some of your other guests have talked about Michael from Taihoa um, before. I mean, he's a great credit to Brisbane and really works with, with the restaurants to, to bring something special and acts as that conduit between the restaurants and the growers and producers. And, you know, what he does is incredible. And, I mean, those things are all great. I mean... We're really just flat out at the moment here. We're about to open another restaurant in February as well, um, which is at the Carlisle Hotel. Yeah, so that one had been in the works for a little while. And, you know, another restaurant um, two doors up from Same Same at the Carlisle. Uh, the space was just too good to pass up, and so we're going to do a you know an everyday Italian trattoria there, um, and we're aiming to be open by mid February. So yeah, that's that's looming. Pretty heavy at the moment. It's a yeah, it's a busy year. You've, um, you've it's been a couple of years in the making for Agnes, but it's been a pretty um, fast moving year for you, particularly the last couple of months. How have you felt this year? Has, it, has the experience of twenty twenty changed you as a chef and a person? Yeah, definitely. It, it certainly has. I mean, it's it's given me a renewed drive um, for the possibilities that we have and we're afforded it's um i feel like it's been the year for most the ones that sort of dug deep when um when covid hit through and you know through adversity tried something different and rose up have really been rewarded and i think that that is the case and um i think the public as well is more open to to the recognizing that hard work and and rewarding it it's yeah, it's been a great year for that. And I think those that have dug deep and pushed forward, it's been a, a great success for them. Well, Ben, um, you're a bloody legend and uh, you're a bloody good cook too. Of Every meal I've ever had that you've cooked has been outstanding. <laughs> um, so very much looking forward to enjoying Agnes at some stage and also this uh, mystery new Italian uh, trattoria that's going to appear next year. Uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds, mate. Um, please keep in touch. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much, Huck. It's much appreciated. Cheers. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.